0: You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, Bringing Theology to Life. So here we are, New Year's Eve, another year has passed. In many ways, time has gone that we cannot get back. And it's a natural time for us all to contemplate where our lives are going, what has happened over the last year, and also start to look uh, towards the year ahead. I've done a few new New Year's messages over the years. And in preparation for this study, I pulled them all up and I, I read over them. And they're usually a similar type of theme. At some point, they will usually include a, a summary of events of the year, which, to be honest, is usually the list of long, worrying trends and devastating events and tragic deaths and wars and prophetic foreshadows and things like that. And don't get me wrong, it's important that we engage in all that stuff. We have done many times and we will do again throughout the year. But it's also, there's a tendency as humans that we all have when we engage with these sort of things, that can be worrying or a little depressing maybe in some respects. But that is nothing new. These things have really been ongoing like this since the fall of Adam and Eve, but really every year. Let me read to you a small excerpt from Spurgeon's sermon. It's a New Year sermon in the year 1866. And Spurgeon said this, He said, all the newspaper summaries of 1866 are like the prophetic roll which was written within and without, with lamentations. The year is gone, and everyone is glad to think that we have entered upon a new one. Yet who knows, but what 1867 may be worse? Who can tell? Well, brethren, let it be what God chooses it to be. Let it be what he appoints, for there is comfort in the assurance that not a moment from this Sabbath night on the 31st of December, 1867, shall be without the tender care of heaven. Not even for a second will the Lord remove his eyes from any one of his people. Here is good cheer for us. We will march boldly into this wilderness, for the pillar of fire and cloud will never leave us, the manna will never cease to drop, the rock that followed us will never cease to flow with living streams. Onward, onward, let us go, joyously, confident in our God. Wonderful sermon. You can go online and read it. It's called Cheer for All of Us, New Year's Sermon 1866. It's worth reading. So I sat down, having read that sermon and a few other similar sermons from old saints, and thinking, what can we do different? What is really important right now? I could produce a similar list of things that have happened in in this year. We've had many uh, things that have gone on, many things that are prophetically relevant, I believe. But I wanted to do something uh, a little different really. But those things will always be with us. Wars, rumours of wars, we're told to expect those things every year. Every year we're a year closer to the coming of the Lord too. So we will expect to see the footprints of the Messiah getting nearer. And like I said, it's important to engage in those things and we will do that throughout the year. But I want us not to look at the world this morning, the circumstances, the things going on. I want us actually to look at ourselves this morning because it is a time where we must ask ourselves questions too are we in the same place going into this year as we were last year and I'm talking spiritually what has the Lord done in our lives this year have we grown in our relationships have we matured have we been refined, been pruned, been disciplined whatever it may be is the Lord working in our lives we enter a period now of res- resolutions don't we common to make a resolution at this time of year. The commitments that we want to focus on for the coming year, no doubt most of you will be talking of getting back in shape after the Christmas, fitness regimes, gym memberships, finances, mental health, positivity, nothing wrong with having a good attitude towards all of those things. That's right and proper. But I want us to think deeper. What should we commit to focus on now as believers, as those who know the Lord? Our relationship with God, is the most important thing in our lives. And if it is not, it should be. It should be preeminent. It has priority over everything else that we do in our lives. And that should bring us peace. And that should bring us joy as we enter into another turbulent year, even if we don't know what the year holds. Listen to the words of Tozer from one of his New Year sermons. He says, I do not advise that we end the year on a sombre note. The march, not the dirge, has ever been the music of Christianity. If we are good students in the school of life, there is much that the years have to teach us. But the Christian is more than a student, more than a philosopher, he is a believer. And the object of his faith makes all the difference, the mighty difference. Of all persons, the Christian should be best prepared for whatever the new year brings. He has dealt with life at its source. In Christ he has disposed of a thousand enemies that other men must face alone and unprepared. He can face his tomorrow cheerful and unafraid because yesterday he turned his feet into the ways of peace and today he lives for God. The man who has made God his dwelling place will always have a safe habitation. Again, wonderful quote there. But I want us to think hard about this. It's easy to quote from the greats who have gone before us in many ways. Yet we often make the mistake, don't we, of kind of thinking we'll just end up there in this safe habitation of god these things just come naturally to us like a spiritual miracle if we just make sure we don't mess up too bad throughout the year and i believe that attitude is a mistake to get into that place with god into that depth of relationship that intimacy with him the truth is this requires discipline a spiritual sweat it requires commitment and often it will involve devastating failures and it will involve high victories too, and everything in between on your journey with the Lord. The main point is the direction that you run in the race of life. And this is, in fact, a constant theme of exhortation in the New Testament. And if you could turn with me, please, to Hebrews chapter 12, will be our text for this morning. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. The author of Hebrews, he says, therefore. Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The main theme of the book of Hebrews is an exhortation to believers to continue following Jesus. Why? The argument of Hebrews is simply that he is far superior to anything else. That is it, if I could summarise it. Therefore, because of that, the writer says you continue to press on and run the race of following Jesus that we call life. Persevere in your commitment to following Jesus. He is better. And the argument through the book of Hebrews argues that he is better than Moses, he's better than the angels, he's better than the temple service, he's better than the priesthood. That is the whole book. He's better than anything and everything. And he was writing to Jewish believers at this time, so he highlighted all of the main things that Judaism held dear, Moses, angels, the temple, and so on. But we could equally apply it to us too. He is better than anything we could imagine, better than any person or teacher we may listen to, better than any spiritual experience or being we might think of, better than any religious work, any charity, any almsgiving, whatever it may be. He is better than anything and everything. That's why he deserves a preeminence. That's why we follow him. It says, we have a great cloud of witnesses who have gone before. That's a nice way of saying that there's a group of people who testify that following Jesus is worth it. The ones who lived by faith. And it, the therefore is connecting this to the previous chapter. You may be familiar with it. Hebrews chapter 11 is known as the hall of faith. It's a kind of like a roll call of Old Testament believers who lived a life of faith. It's, and as you read that list, you'll see that many of those people were far from perfect the thing is not about them so much as it is about their faith and who their faith was placed in the promises of the word of god it was their faith that triumphed in that chapter not the people necessarily that's the point you must understand it was their faith that kept them moving forward it was their faith that kept them enduring persecution it was their faith that kept them from falling when they stumbled it was their faith that they believed by faith that they believed the promises of God, by faith that they obeyed the promises of God, the command of God, the word of God. It was by faith that they witnessed these miracles, by faith that they left their homes, and on and on that chapter goes. I'd advise you read it. The point is there is a long history of great witnesses of people who have persevered in the race of faith. And the major point is they did it by faith, many of them without ever seeing many of the fulfillment of the promises that they were believing in i.e. Jesus, the Messiah, coming to fulfil many of these promises. Many of them died before Jesus was even born, yet still they live by faith. For us, we live on the other side of this, the other side of the cross. We look back to Jesus. We've seen the impact his life has had. We've, we've heard the gospel. We've believed these things. We should have even more reason to endure in the life of faith. But now the author of Hebrews, with that exhortation, gives us instruction to ensure that we do endure as we run, And he uses kind of sports analogies and athletic analogies that we can all associate with. He says, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. As we run the race of life, we must shed any extra load that is hindering us. My Bible says encumbrance, your Bible might have something like weight there. The idea is a weight that is being tied around us. And this is the part, what I mean, where we examine ourselves. It seems so obvious that if you want to try and win a race, you do not load yourself up with weights around your shoulders. You do not put things, tie things around your legs to impede your running. You won't get very far. It seems obvious when we think about it like that. Yet, how often is that exactly what we do in our spiritual lives? We put weights on ourselves and we tie ourselves up with sin that entangles and God will sometimes have to step in and remove such things from us and that can be a painful process a pruning process is required not just for those who are doing wrong for every Christian who wants to grow this is the analogy that God uses there will come a time when he'll need to prune you in order that you may bear more fruit Again, horticultural analogy, we understand that too. Sometimes you have to get rid of excess on the plant in order to encourage new growth. The Lord does that with all of us. That's really been my story of spiritual life this year. And in the midst of it, it's painful. But in the midst of these things, you must remember, God removes the weights and the things that entangle us for the purpose of helping us to run the race with endurance. He wants us to continue running and therefore we must commit ourselves into his hands. It says, lay aside every encumbrance. That word there is a strong word in the Greek. It's a command we actually find quite frequently in the Bible. Let me read to you a few verses that use that exact same word. Romans thirteen twelve. it says, Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Lay aside those things that we should not be doing. Ephesians 4.22, lay aside the old self which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. Ephesians 4.25, lay aside falsehood and speak truth to your neighbour. Colossians 3.8, lay aside anger, wrath, malice, slander and abusive speech from your mouth. James 1.21, putting aside, laying aside all filthiness. And all that remains of wickedness in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your soul. And 1 Peter 2.1, therefore putting aside all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy and envy and slander, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Notice in those verses the connection, the reason we lay aside is so that we may grow. And that is the point, that is the purpose really of our lives. Now you may read those lists and you think, well, obviously that's a good list of things for a Christian to lay aside. But they're very clearly, we would say, sins, identified in the Bible as things that miss the mark of God's world, uh, God's way for us. Yet the term that we read, encumbrance or weight, in Hebrews 12.1, seems to be separated from sins. It says, lay aside the weights, and then it deals with sins in the next sentence, suggesting that it may be something slightly different. For people, these may be things that are not necessarily sins in the sense of wrongdoing. They may just be things that are individual to you that are weighing you down in your walk. For someone else, they might be fine. It might not be weighing them down. But these are things for you. Listen to F.B. Mayer. Again, he wrote a great New Year sermon where he dealt with this verse. He said, thousands of Christians are like waterlogged vessels. They cannot sink but they are so saturated with inconsistencies and worldliness and permitted evil that they can only be towed with difficulty into the celestial port. Is there anything in your life which dissipates your energy from holy things, which disinclines you to the practice of prayer and Bible study, which rises before you in your best moments and produces in you a general sense of uneasiness and disturbance? Is there anything within the circle of your consciousness concerning which you have to argue with yourself, or which you do not care to investigate. We so often allow in ourselves things which we would be the first to condemn in others. We frequently find ourselves engaged in discovering ingenious reasons why a certain course which would be wrong in others is justifiable in ourselves. All such things may be considered a weight. It may be a friendship which is too engrossing, a habit which is sapping away our energy as to taproot taproot the fruit-bearing powers of a tree, a pursuit an amusement, a pastime, a system of reading, a method of spending time too fascinating and too absorbing and therefore harmful to the soul which is tempted to walk when it should run and to loiter when it should make haste. I love that final line there. Walking when God wants us to run and loitering when we should be making haste. Oh, how we like to loiter, don't we? (laughs) That is it, when we should be making haste but we are asked, exhorted here to ask ourselves what things are causing us to do these things, to walk rather than run, and to loiter when we should be moving forward. What weights do we have in our lives? I can't tell you that. You have to come before the Lord and discover that yourself. These are the weights, but then it also says, and the sin that so easily entangles us. The Living Bible translates this, especially those sins that wrap themselves so tightly around our feet and trip us up. That's a good image when you think about someone running. What happens if if someone's running and they get something tied around their ankles, they go down and they go down hard, don't they? That's the picture that we have being given to us here. And if you think you're immune to this, you're not. Most of us have a few of these in our life that the Lord is dealing with. These are the things we don't like to necessarily talk about with other people. These are the things we usually tend to keep private in our own lives. The Puritan writer Thomas Watson, he called these a besetting sin or a darling sin. And what he means by that is they're the ones that are most hidden and treasured in your heart that you don't allow anyone else to know about, the darling sins. He says, take heed of your besetting sin because it is that which your nature and your constitution most incline to. Now, this may be different for each one of you, For some, it may be anger, lust, it may be jealousy. It may be any number of things that you know where your weakness is. But you must also know how to identify it. Thomas Watson goes on. He says, to identify it, think about which sin is most weighted upon in your life. And what he means by that is which sin do you make allowances with your time, conduct and behaviour that allow it to happen. The sin you hate to have reproved or pointed out by someone else in your life that it might be wrong. The sin which most easily leads you to captivity. The sin that you find yourself arguing to justify. The sin which taunts you when you're troubled. And what he means by that is those times when you've had a low week, when emotionally you're low, you may be troubled. Which sin is it that rises its head in your life to try and trip you up? The sin that you have the most trouble parting with. He says it is also the one that is always there in the background, in your mind. This is the darling sin, the besetting sin, the one that entangles us. It is probably different for each one of us. The writer to Hebrews here is exhorting us to lay that aside, to put it away, give it to Jesus. And then he says, after laying aside the weights, after laying aside your entangling sin, he says, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Once these things have been put aside, which like I said may be a painful process, but you will find after that that you can experience a new lease of freedom and pace in your faith like you haven't known before. Trust the Lord. Run with endurance. Notice it doesn't say stroll, it doesn't say walk, it doesn't say wander aimlessly to one side of the track or the other. It says make haste is the word. Run. Make haste in moving forward. It is a lifelong race, a journey of faith and it does require endurance and perseverance not in our own strength but in the strength that the Lord gives to us. To be successful in this race we must have trust in the promises of God. This is what the Hall of Faith was all about. By faith they trusted in the promises of God that they would come to pass. In fact, in Hebrews 11 verse 1 he describes faith in this way. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. That means faith is the belief that although you have not seen it come to pass, because God has promised it, you know it will come to pass, and you can believe on it like it's already happened. That is what it means. We have this sort of faith in the work of the Lord Jesus. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And this sort of faith is like a muscle, really. You train it. You strengthen it. The Lord does this work in our lives. As he does this, persecution, trials, problems in our lives are often the things that make us stronger in our faith. Romans 15.4, whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. James said, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance And let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We all know that if you want to be good at a sport, if you want to be a good runner, if you want to be good at lifting weights or whatever it may be, you train. The training is hard sometimes. You sweat, but in the end, you're better after that. Faith is like that. Yet it's the Lord in charge of this work in that respect. But yet he does do that in our lives and we persevere and we endure. But he doesn't just tell us to do it in our own strength. In verse 2... He gives us the key to how to do this. First 2, Hebrews 12, verse 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Notice it's eyes plural, not eye singular. You cannot live the Christian life with just one eye on Jesus. You can't really live a half-Christian life. Yet, again, if we're honest with ourselves, I see this so often, so many people in this zone, we all slip into it sometimes. We're half-following, we're never properly committing. There are things that means that we are not willing to give over to the hand of the Lord in our lives. These are probably the weights that Hebrews mentioned in the verse before, the things that are holding us back. They might not necessarily be sins, but they are weights in our lives. There's always something holding people like this back. Reminds me of Lot's wife when they were called out of the city. She looked back over her shoulder, longing for what she was leaving behind, the pleasures of that city, rather than following the call of God. And we know the story. A runner in a race is always told, don't look to the other runners on the track behind you. You'll lose time if you do that. You just look straight ahead. Look ahead That is the exhortation here. Look to Jesus. If you trip up and you fall over, get up and look straight at Jesus again and keep going. You see, Jesus is here elevated as a supreme, perfect example of life and faith. We should gaze upon him in faith, be totally absorbed and mesmerized with him. And sometimes when you know you've failed yourself, when you know that things are bad in the world, that is the only good place that you can really look. The only perfect, high example of beauty, moral perfection that you see in this world, it is Jesus. We should be totally mesmerized and concerned with him, as if we have blinkers on. Blinkers they used to put on racehorses or on horses who are pulling chariots. They're like these sort of cardboard things at the side. The reason for that was so that they would not be distracted by anything that might come all around them from behind and from the side. They only looked at where they were going. That is a very good example of what the author is getting at here. Fixing your eyes on Jesus, focusing completely on him, laying aside anything that distracts you, fixing our eyes on one thing that is him and that is him alone. Now we ask ourselves, does this characterize the way we lived our lives in 2023? And should we not commit to this in 2024 in your own life? In our culture, perhaps one of the main ways that we actually take our eyes off Jesus without even knowing it is by inadvertently putting it on ourselves. And what do I mean by that? I'm not talking about healthy examination in in regards to your spiritual life. I'm talking about a self-focus in our life that colors how we live and how we think. The danger of this is with us all the time because the reality of these things that I'm gonna read to you are true. And we go through them. We may have a statement like, I don't like the way they do that. I don't like what this person did to me. I prefer to serve in this way. The leaders don't do this right. I struggle in this environment, I'm no good at this, I have anxiety, I have mental health, you don't understand me, I have problems, this problem, that problem, on and on, the list could go. Now, don't misunderstand me, I'm not in any way minimising the reality and the seriousness of many of those things that we go through in a fallen world. Yet, we must ask ourselves, if we struggle with things like that, do we focus more on them? than we do on Jesus. And what I mean by that is, do they in fact influence our thoughts, our conversations and our actions and our view of the world more than we focus on Jesus Christ to interpret the world for us? It's a very subtle step, I believe, from the reality that we all go through things like that, but allowing it to become the all in all. How much of our conversation is spent on those things? How much of our time and our thoughts and our actions are spent on Jesus? You can only answer that yourself but it may be an indication that we're doing what Hebrews exhorts us not to do, and we're living with one eye on Jesus rather than two. We all fall into that trap sometimes. Ask yourself, it's New Year's Eve today, at the end of this year, will you look back and say at the end of a year, I wish I hadn't spent so long with Jesus. So much time gazing upon his beauty, his majesty, his glory. So much time learning what it is he loves and hates in this world. So much time following the path that he has laid down before me as the ultimate and best path that anyone could ever have for me. You're never going to say that. But many of us, all of us, I would argue, could probably come and say, I wish I hadn't spent so much time wasting it doing this this year. I wish I hadn't spent so much time worrying about that thing at the beginning of the year that I'd forgotten about by the end of the year. I wish I'd spent more time with Jesus. And that is what I want us to think about this year. Most of us likely have things we could say about wasting time. And I know what life is like. It's busy, and these things are hard. But at a certain point, we must ask ourselves, do we have one or two eye on Jesus? Octavius Winslow, another Puritan writer, He wrote a wonderful little pamphlet, you can get it online, it's just called Looking Unto Jesus, about this verse. He says this, We cannot keep our eyes too exclusively or too intently fixed on Jesus. All salvation is in him, all salvation proceeds from him, all salvation leads to him, and for the assurance and comfort of our salvation we are to rest believingly and entirely on him. Christ must be all, Christ the beginning, Christ the centre, Christ the end. Oh, the blameless, to turn from self and rest in Christ, a full Christ, a loving Christ, a tender Christ, whose heart's love never chills, from whose eye darts no reproof, and from whose lips breathes no sentence of condemnation. That's why we fix our eyes on him. Robert Murray McChaney. he used to say this, for everyone, look at your problems. For everyone, look at your problems, your weaknesses and your failures. You must take ten looks at Jesus. And that's a good, I like that. It's a very simple life method because we know in ourselves we are much quicker to see problems and weaknesses and failures in our own lives, to see things that we could do, that we cause us, that we could moan about, basically, isn't it? It's very easy to see that. Yet when we do that, take 10 looks at Jesus. That's what he says. That was his pastoral counsel there. Let's go on. In the verse, it says, The author and perfecter, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The author and perfecter of faith, it could read, The originator and perfecter, or the leader and the consummator of faith. To him our eyes are to be turned as we look away from every rival attraction. Who for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Now this is an interesting thought. What joy was set before Jesus that he could endure such pain, even a pain of being crucified on a cross? That must have been quite a serious joy to give him that endurance there. And let's explore this for a little bit. It's a multifaceted joy. I'm going to pull out just a couple of elements of it to you today. Firstly, he knew he would be resurrected back to the Father from the Old Testament. Psalm 16, verse 10. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life, and in your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. And in Acts chapter 2, the Apostle Peter applies that verse to Jesus Christ, telling us it was about him. He knew he would not die, in the sense. He was going to be resurrected. He was going to go back to the presence of the Father, where joy is full. We also have Psalm 110. He knew that he would be exalted to heaven in glory and he would have an eternal throne and an eternal priesthood after enduring the cross. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, the Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power in holy array from the womb of the dawn, Your youth are to you as the Jew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And again, Peter applies that to Jesus in Acts chapter 2. So it was for the joy set before him. This was the resurrection and exaltation and his joy at being back in the presence of his father forever. That was his joy. He could not wait to get back to the father. This was the joy set before him. And he knew he first had to endure the cross, but that gave him the endurance to do it. Now, it's important to remember, as you read the New Testament, one of the greatest joys that is held out for us as believers is that we share in Jesus' joy. We are united to him. He is the head, we are the body. Therefore, his resurrection was only the first fruits of our resurrection to come. His going to the Father was only a foretaste of all of us, Going into the presence of the lord in that respect and therefore when it says in his presence is fullness of joy that is a joy that we cannot really even fathom but it will be full and that is also our joy here and that gives us motivation when we are enduring trials and tribulation and persecution and depression and all the things that we go through in this fallen world just as when he was in the garden of gethsemane and he was sweating drops of blood he could still say not my will but yours father Because he had this joy before him in his mind, because it was promised in the word of God. And that's the same for us. It says he despised the shame. That means he thought little of it. It was nothing to him. Just like it says in Philippians, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. That means he was not willing to hold on to power, but he was willing to humble himself and come down, fulfill the mission that the Lord had for him, because he knew that he would again be exalted up to the highest place with all of us there having fulfilled his mission, in that is great joy. It says, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He was assured the triumphant position at the right hand of the Father, where he is still today interceding and praying for us, waiting for that day when he's told to come and get us. You see, we look forward to the future and certain joy of resurrection and exaltation with the Father. Remember these promises. They are effective in our spiritual lives as we encounter the darkness of this world. And then look at verse 3. He says, For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And this is just, I love this verse, those first three words, consider him. Consider him. The word means give him your utmost attention and do it now. That is basically the tense of what it means there in the Greek. If you are weary in life, consider him. If you are losing heart in the Christian walk, consider him. If you are weighed down with life, generally, consider him. If you are entangled in sin, consider him. If you're grieving, consider him. If you are persecuted, consider him. If you're just struggling to get through the day, consider him. If you're depressed, consider him. If you're growing cold, consider him. If you lack joy in this life, consider him, the author and perfecter of your faith the supreme perfect example and the one we look to by faith the one who will carry us through to that glorification and exaltation and joy in the presence of the father consider him that should be our desire for 2024 we need this exhortation there's a whole book this whole book is basically an exhortation to consider him why because we are prone to wander we all know that We sing songs about it, don't we? We are prone to wonder. Look at the final words of Psalm 119. If you have ever read that psalm? It's the longest psalm in the Bible. It's an amazing psalm, written by someone who loves the word of God more than anything else. It's the longest psalm, 176 verses, extolling the glories and the beauty of the word of God. And look at the last three verses. The author says, I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live that it may praise you and let your ordinances help me. And then the very last verse, he says, I have gone astray as a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. I have gone astray. You wouldn't think that anyone who could write a psalm like that would go astray, but yet he knows his heart is prone to wander. John Wesley acknowledged this. Again, one of my heroes of the faith was John Wesley. He knew there was a propensity in us to grow cold as life sometimes overtakes us, as darkness surrounds us, as the years go on, we can lose our fire, we can lose our sense of commitment. So in order to help us recalibrate, John Wesley did something to help us focus on what really matters. He created a service. It was called a covenant renewal service in which the early Methodists would renew their commitment to God. And this was actually typically done on New Year's Eve at midnight. It became the first kind of tradition where you would have a midnight service going into the new year in 1755 he held his first covenant service he wrote in his journal that this service was another means of increasing serious religion practiced by our forefathers and attended with eminent blessing namely the joining in a covenant to serve God with all our heart and with all our soul approximately 1800 people attended that first service in French church in Spitalfields London and in his journal from that day he said, surely the fruit of it shall remain forever. And what's interesting about John Wesley, if you know, he ministered right up until his last days, but he was very meticulous in keeping a journal. You can go through those journals. There's like a 20 volume set of them all. You will find a journal entry every January the 1st commenting on this New Year's Eve service that they had, this commitment service. Let me read to you a few of them. January the 1st, 1756. We had a large congregation at four in the morning. How much are men divided in their expectations concurring the ensuing year? Will it bring a large harvest of temporal calamities or of spiritual blessings? Perhaps both, of temporal affections preparatory to spiritual blessings. Sunday, January the 1st, 1758, we began the year with a great congregation at four, rejoicing and praising God. January the 1st, 1760, we began the service at four in the morning. A great number attended and God was in the midst, strengthening and refreshing our souls. 1764 we met in the evening for that solemn purpose truly the consolations of god were not small with us many were filled with peace and joy many with holy fear and several backsliders were healed every year it goes on from 1755 all through the 60s all through the 1770s and then even as he approaches the end of his life you find it still in his journal january the 1st 1785 he simply writes whether this be the last or not may it be the best year of my life And then on Thursday, January the 1st, 1789, he says, if this is to be the last year of my life, according to some of the prophecies, he was pretty sick at this time, I hope it will be the best. I am not careful about it, but heartily receive the advice of the angel in Milton, how well is thine, how long permit me to heaven. And then in January the 1st, 1790, just one year before he died, he was 87 years old when he wrote this. He says, I am now an old man, decayed from head to foot. My eyes are dim, my right hand shakes much, my mouth is hot and dry, I have a lingering fever almost every day, my motion is weak and slow, however, blessed be God, I do not slack in my labour, I can preach and I can write still. And he did knock out some pretty impressive stuff at that stage of his life, if you read his stuff. But what I find fascinating about this, that's 35 years of diary entries I've just read to you pretty much, but the span, I've missed obviously lots out, but that is the span of it every single year doing this commitment service to the Lord. He took that so seriously that he knew it was a right thing to do, to commit yourself to seeking him and the Lord at this time. You want to ask yourself, why did this one man have such a remarkable ministry? Why did the early Methodists really transform this country? Why did they see such fruit? Could this simply be the answer? They fixed their eyes on Jesus and they yearly reminded themselves of that obligation as a covenant commitment, maybe. Wesley wrote a specific prayer for this service. I'm going to read it to you now, and I would say may this be our prayer for the coming year too. And I'm going to read this as a prayer, and then I'm going to just bow my head, and we'll have our time of open prayer. If you want to give thanks to the Lord, if you want to commit this coming year to the Lord, this is a time that you can do that now. But this is the service that John Wesley, this is the prayer that he wrote for those services. He says, I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Place me with whom you will. Put me to doing or put me to suffering. Let me be put to work for you or set aside for you, praised for you or criticized for you. Let me be full, let me be empty, let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and fully surrender all things to your glory and service. And now, O wonderful and holy God, creator, redeemer and sustainer, you are mine and I am yours, so be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth Let it also be made in heaven. Amen. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.